Hi everyone, and welcome once again to our holiday series of Dead to Rights, the podcast. We're pleased to bring you this 51st episode of Season 1, 2018, featuring my chat with a wonderful new Canadian author, Marilyn Kay. I'll also be reading to you from her story, That Damn Cat, hence this episode's title. Marilyn burst onto the Canadian crime scene with her story, published in 13 Claws by the Maydams of Mayhem, Carrick Publishing, 2017. Actually, truth be told, Marilyn won a contest to have her story appear in our anthology and has since become a full and active member of the Maydams of Mayhem and our webmistress throughout 2018. So we'll be talking with Marilyn about all that. But before we bring her onto the audio stage, on behalf of all of us here at Carrick Publishing and Dead to Rights, please let me wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm frequently reminded that this time of year is not a happy one for everyone. At the Carrick household, we remain determined to let our lights shine throughout the holiday and hope to bring good cheer to those who are without loved ones, without food or shelter, or the companionship that so enhances our human existence. If you're listening now, and if you are lonely, why not write me a story? I would love to see it. I may not be able to do anything with it other than thank you for sending it, but who knows, it might help to reach out to another human being, and it may help you to rediscover within yourself that which is creative, beautiful, and bright. If you hear this, and if you are so inclined, you can send your story to me as a PDF through my private Facebook page at Carrick Publishing as a private message. That's the best way to reach me. So again, that's as a PDF, and you're sending it for my private reading only. I will not publish it or share it with anyone else, um, not without your permission. Please use the subject line in your Facebook message to Carrick Publishing, Story for the Holidays. Thank you. And to you especially, dear reader, who finds yourself alone with a book or a movie or a podcast for company, I send you my love. And now, let me introduce you to a lady who is going to climb the charts of the Canadian crime scene, no doubt about it. Marilyn Kay debuts two crime short stories in the fall of 2017, That Damn Cat in 13 Claws and Journey into the Dark in the BoucherCon Passport to Murder anthology, published in October of 2017. Marilyn began her writing as a contributor to the Dictionary of the Middle Ages before working as a business journalist and then in government communications. More recently, she did social media coaching. She is a member of Sisters in Crime and an executive member of Sisters in Crime Toronto. You can find her at marilynk.me. Good morning, so, Marilyn. How are you today? And welcome to Dead to Rights. Oh, thank you very much. I'm I'm doing very well. Thanks, Donna. And how are you? I'm great, thanks. And with the Christmas season on us, I wanted to to get you on the show so we could do a year in review for the Maydams of Mayhem, as well as yeah. talking about your work. And um, I know you've been working away on a novel. I think it's called. I think it is. 
called? Tell me out here. What is it called? Oh, okay. I didn't write it down. Yes, that's okay because what happened is I changed the name. Oh. It's now, <laughs> it's now called Love Thy Neighbor. Okay. That's a great title. Um, I know before, what was it called before? Because I know I saw it somewhere and I went back and tried to find it. Well, I had a working title. Okay. That was called Killing the Emams. <laughs> okay. So love but we decided not, yeah, I decided that wasn't exactly the title to use. Um, yeah. Love Thy Neighbor, I think works better because it is a journey into Toronto's alt-right movement and uh, and and so there are some imams who are going to bite the dust but mm -hmm. there's a lot more going on in in the story and and also the title yeah it's I, very topical it's a very important subject matter um how far along into the novel are you when are we looking for it to come out Oh, I'm nailing you now. <laughs> I know you are. Well, I am actually, I did a pitch to a, an agent in the U.S. Um, at the Romance Writers, the Toronto Romance Writers Conference, Northern Hearts, mm -hmm. in, at the end of September. And she was interested. Good. And, Good. What she said to me is to go back and make the manuscript as perfect as possible mm -hmm. and send it the, the entire manuscript to her. Good. So that was really exciting. But mm -hmm. now I'm in the process of making it perfect, as perfect as possible. So Good. I've actually done some rewriting and I'm editing and I had I, I knew that the word count was far too large. It, mm -hmm. it was coming in at, at around 150,000 words. Which That's a lot of words. Kind of a yeah. doorstopper, which is yeah. not really what they're looking for, especially yeah. for a first-time novelist. That's really it. For a first novel that is not proven, they really don't want that kind of word count. And I'm glad you raised that for our listeners. If you are pitching your first novel... I know that there's no hard, fast rules artistically, but try to come in between 80 and 85,000 words for a full novel, um, if you can. Certainly not more than 100,000 words, because you just won't be able to market it. Um, that's exactly it. And mm -hmm. she said she was actually okay with 100,000 words. Good. Uh, Good. Because it's a complex, it's a very complex and twisty kind of plot yeah. and because my um, main character is part of a team there are more characters to deal with yeah. yeah and more things going on which is what I really wanted it to do anyway because yes. um, it's a police procedural I love that kind of twisted work I really do so you've really got me intrigued at this point um love thy neighbor so I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest that may come out in 2019 even though I know you're not really there to to make a commitment yet this is not a commitment this is sort of um let's call it uh an estimate <laughs> um yeah yeah I'm I'm hoping uh, 
I'm thinking maybe more 2020, but she was extremely interested in it. It's mm-hmm. just that I, now I have to prove to her that I can yes. write. <laughs> yeah. And a big part of that is editing it down to the necessary word count. And um, 100,000 words really is reasonable if you've got a terribly twisted plot. And I love twisted plots. Um, Because what these editors and publishers are telling us, they don't want wasted verbiage. They really don't, especially in a first novel. And that's why it's so important to be able to pare it down. Are you using any particular techniques to get it down? Well, I... I started in Scrivener, and uh, and I like Scrivener, and I hate it, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I and I did I I started out as a pure plotter, mm-hmm. and then got bored with plotting, plotting, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, and ended it up um, just starting to write. Mm-hmm. That. That was uh, around September of last year that I started that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, Scrivener has some nice things, but re- honestly, I needed to get it into Word. Yes, yes. And, and I have sent it to my daughter, who is a incredibly keen reader of murder mysteries, etc., Mm-hmm. And has, is also a keen editor. Good. And she's my, I, I promised her that she would get first dibs. And then I have a few other people who are lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the techniques I am using, though, are, are simply going through. I actually ended up rewriting my first chapter. I turned it into a prologue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and, one of the little um, tricks that I'm using is something that I picked up from you from oh, one yeah. of your podcasts. And that oh, was, wow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that is to go through um, Word using the search function for L-Y. Aha, yes. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because I thought that I was, very good at not using adverbs. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> we all think we're good at not using adverbs. Yeah. <laughs> adverbs. Yeah. We're all exceptionally good at not using <laughs> adverbs. <laughs> well, you've made my day, Marilyn. I can't believe it. I love to hear that somebody took one of the tips. And I'll tell you another tip because I, I know you and I know that you're a Canadian author. Watch for what I call Canadianisms. And um, we have a very Russian-style manner of, of referring to ourselves and our immediate environment. Maybe it comes from being in a cold climate. We tend to diminish everything we touch. Everything is just a little bit. Just look for those words, just little and bit. I call them diminutives. And, um, You know, uh, Russian writers have their own way of doing this, too, and it's part of their art. But for us, it just becomes making everything smaller than it needs to be. So watch for that. Yes, um, I I have been, actually. Good. Now, I do use Canadianisms, and my characters do say sorry. 
Yes, yes, they have to. Because Otherwise, they, they have to. Genuine. Yeah, they wouldn't That's be Canadian. Right. <laughs> and exactly. they are, they are um, on the whole, more polite than mm -hmm. if they were set if they were cops in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and and what I have tried to do, and I do have some um, members of the police force who are also going to give it a final look. Excellent. Because I really do want it to be Yeah, especially for accurate. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I you know, obviously we have artistic license. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I really do want to get an generally in general the procedure right and I I want it I want it to reflect how the Toronto police actually works. Mm -hmm. They don't work like one rogue detective. They mm -hmm. work teams. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I, I invented a team for this novel. It's called the Homicide Diversity Team. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That is so Canadian. <laughs> That's wonderful. And given the nature of the novel, it's really necessary too. So well done. Yeah. Yes, Maybe yes. they'll come up with that now when they read your book. You never know. Well, you know, it's funny. I was talking to um, Ed Adach, who is um, a our favorite forensic detective. I I can't remember how many times he's spoken at Sisters in Crime, mm -hmm. but I've I've seen him three times. Mm -hmm. And and I know that he worked also with um, a fellow madame, um, Lisa De Nicholas. Oh, okay. Yes, mm -hmm. and and um, <clears throat> pardon me. Anyway, we were. T he was. He was actually intrigued. Is this something the homicide squad should have? <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, it sounds like a great idea to me, especially in these these times. Uh, it can be quite difficult, you know. So well, there she yeah. goes, being all Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is that um, it's interesting because homicide detectives don't generally, they aren't generally uh, diverse. Mm -hmm. They're quite white. Yes. And... Yeah. And, uh, you know, that there you see every once in a while um, a, a person of, of color, um, but not to the extent, I think, that, that, that they could use. And, and there's mm -hmm. a number of reasons, though. One of them simply being that there are only so many slots as a detective mm -hmm. and you have to wait for some of these people to retire. <laughs> yes. Yes. And people don't, uh, you know, people retire at retirement age, not much exactly. before. So, <laughs> you know, time marches on, but, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And so uh, you know, I do I do know the police force in Toronto, the Metro police have really made great strides in diversifying over, overall at the more junior levels so yeah. there is hope that as time moves these people will move up the ladder and move up into some of these more higher level jobs you know yes yes and there there are some already at the i mean mark saunders is a good example 
because mm-hmm. he's black and he's the chief of police. Yes, um, yes. And and they do have, they have a little bit up at the top. Just a little bit? A little bit, <laughs> yes. A little bit, yes. Just a little bit, of course. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, yeah. But um, my my team has my main characters in my team have were actually influenced um inspired by the story that i did for the um 13 claws anthology yes and that's the story that we're going to be reading today for our short story that damn cat so we'll get to that (laughs) i'm going to talk to you a little bit about that and how it came to be i mean and you raised a really good point on your website because i went and did a tiny bit of research um uh, you raised a good point that the title would lead people to think it might be a cozy, and there are certainly some yeah. cozy stories in Thirteen Claws. They're not all. They range from very gritty to dark noir to cozy, but that right. damn cat is not really cozy. Um, it has a cat just because our theme was animals. So, you know, we will talk about that. In fact, let's do it now. Let's jump in now. How did you come up with that storyline? Oh, well, I wasn't even going to do it. I w- um, what happened is that um, Rosemary McCracken, I may um suggested to uh, one of my friends, um, actually a dear friend, Linda Cahill, who is a crime fiction author. She has a number of short stories and is working on a novel right now as well. And she's been kind of a mentor to me. And it was about, oh, two weeks before the deadline for the contest. Mm -hmm. And Rosemary had suggested to Linda that I write the story because I was not published. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I looked at the, uh, the submission guidelines and it said, that it had to have an animal in it. My first mm-hmm. instinct was, oh, God, no. Not no, Marilyn, you're, you're a woman after my heart because <laughs> as the publisher and as a long time, Madam, I didn't even want to submit a story because I thought, oh, no, <laughs> I don't write cozy. I just can't. I mean, it's, it's I have nothing against the genre, she says. No, no. It's just not my genre. And uh, so I had a tough time. I had a really tough time. And then... Um, Right around the time that Madeline and uh, uh, I were talking about getting started on this particular one, all of a sudden we lost our Daisy, um, our golden retriever. And I thought, you know what, this would be a good way to memorialize Daisy. So that's the approach I ended up taking. But sorry, I was asking you about Yeah, well, <laughs> what happened is then I thought, no, I, mm, uh, I, I just don't think I can do this. But I have a, I had a cat. I lost my cat in February of this year. And, but anyway, this I'm, I'm vision, sorry to hear that, uh, Marilyn. Yeah. This vision of my cat, Rudeland, who was a Maine Coon, namely, we she was, heaven knows what she was exactly. Mm-hmm. She was a, 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 a rescue cat. Um, but, and I thought, 
wait a minute, I don't have to write a cozy. And I, I just saw her image and her usual image of, of being almost, a, almost sphinx-like. And I thought, well, yeah, I think I could do a story in which the cat really, the cat's not talking, the cat's not um, helping out, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, but is very key to mm -hmm. solving the crime mm -hmm. and um, and maybe throw in a little bit of humor too mm -hmm. so uh, because I do I, I do like right I, I like humor yes yes you I'm not good at it yeah. <laughs> I haven't got a funny bone in my body <laughs> <laughs> but I do like humor. And actually, yeah. it's funny because when I talk to people, especially people I enjoy talking to like yourself, I generally have a great laugh. So you'd think that I have a sense of humor. But when it comes to writing, I tend to the very serious, a little bit to the dark. So it's hard. I try to inject some humor as I go because I realize that readers need that. They really need yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sort of of the Shakespeare mode. And, you know, even in the, the most grisly uh, dramas, he manages to throw in some of his gesture. Yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, I so I, I decided I'd sit down and, and write this story. Um, the first story I had written was set in the mainly in the UK uh, because I have ties there. But I thought, you know, like, I don't have very much time to write this story. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> it's two weeks. <laughs> yeah. So I decided to set it in Toronto, mm -hmm. in the Toronto Police Force, a homicide squad. And I came up with two characters, a rookie detective, Maureen Kelly, and a more, more seasoned... Um, slightly offbeat, pain-in-the-ass partner, uh, Joe Corso. Mm -hmm. And um, it ended up that uh, people who read the story liked the characters, and I liked the characters too, so um, they became the basis with a lot of um, shall we say enhancements <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in my novel mm -hmm. but in love that Avery and we will be reading that damn cat today so listeners yeah. pay attention to these characters because they are going to appear again we're going to say 2019 or 2020 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll hold and, you to that Marilyn and the thing is that it, it was lots of fun doing the story because I actually um, went and scouted out where I wanted to have the crime scene and, 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 and I wanted to use um, things that were typically Toronto, like streetcars mm -hmm. and buses. The red rockets, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and, and I, I went and I did, I took pictures of the ravine and, and, and all of that where I decided to set, to uh, set the whole uh, story. So, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's a great story and it shines through and uh, that's why it was chosen. I've got to take a 
second and give a plug to the Maydams of Mayhem oh, because yeah. um, uh, we first started this in, I'm going to say, 2012. We decided to band together as a group of writers and uh, help promote each other. And then, of course, we got the brilliant idea that we would start doing anthologies. We started with an anthology titled 13 in 2013. In 2015, we came out with 13 o'clock. And in 2017, we came out with 13 claws. And Marilyn entered a short story contest to be included in 13 claws. And that damn cat was a big hit with all of us. We really enjoyed it. So if for no other reason than to read That Damn Cat, get out there and purchase 13 Claws and support the Maydams of Mayhem. We're a great bunch of ladies, which segues nicely into the next thing I wanted to get Marilyn to talk about. Marilyn actually took on a job for the Maydams that I used to have that uh, wore me out. And when I became totally worn out, Lynn Murphy took on the job, and I am forever grateful to her. And now Marilyn Kay has been for the past, what, year and a half been our web mistress? Well, um, has it been that long? I don't I think it has. Yeah, yeah. I think it's yeah, been pretty close. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I work with Madeline. Mm -hmm. um, and we do, we, we do the um, um, May Dance on the Move page. Mm -hmm. and some of the other pages and and i uh i have a background in web okay I, well that makes it a little easier for you <laughs> than it was for me yes yes <laughs> i i uh, i was the web the first um real web um what shall i call myself guru master web, ed web editor Web's um, website manager for the um, Workplace Safety and Insurance Board. Okay. okay. And how I got into that was <laughs> the the um, WSIB was developing a new website, and they had this. They had contracted to this agency and the agency was developing the website and I had just finished the annual report for the, um, the WSIB and I really didn't like the prospect of doing, uh, to being a, an account manager. I wanted something different and mm -hmm. I felt that um, at the time that the, this was back in 1998, that websites and online activity was the way of the future. And so I went into our VP of communications and said, uh, you need a project manager for this website. And I'm it. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> what are my qualifications? I surf the web. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably as qualified as anyone else at the time. Yeah. So I I learned on the job. Yeah. And yeah. and then I got involved with with web some some minor web development and got involved with with WordPress. Mm -hmm. And I do love WordPress. I, yes, so do I. I like the freedom of it. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot more that, that 
that can be done with WordPress. Yes, and yes, particularly if you're willing to pay for the premium. Um, uh, for our Carrick Publishing site, we do pay for the premium, and we have a, an actual web designer for it. But for all of our other extraneous websites, I do try to manage them on my own just to try to be yes, cost-effective. Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I try to keep them within the... Um, I think one of my other websites may be paid for a premium, but the rest I try to keep within the manageable, uh, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and actually at one time I did have a premium um, self-hosted website for another business mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, it, it was worth it to me to pay the money and, and to have, quite a nice designed website mm -hmm. um, and now I have a free theme <laughs> very neglected website <laughs> you're so busy for the May Dance, and that's why so I want to give a big thank you to me yes. today and if you haven't visited go to www.maydamsofmayhem.com dot com and check us out there because Marilyn does a great job keeping everything up to date. Thank you. Yes, and there will be a, a December will be popping up. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit mm -hmm. afterwards. Yes, I, I owe you some information. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be having to chase all that information. Now I have to provide it. Darn. <laughs> yes. So um, yeah, we've got it um, pretty. We this month is our our um, posting for um, the holiday, and holiday means sitting back and reading a good book, giving a good yes. book, and yes. so make it very easy for people to find out the good books that. Mm -hmm. and good stories that our Maydams are have produced for the 2018. Yes. So you need to visit that if you're looking mm -hmm. for a gift or mm -hmm. a gift for yourself. Yes. For the holidays. Because yes. we've got some fabulous offerings. We've got great authors we and we've got great books authors. and uh yes. Yep, and uh, the Maydams uh, series of anthologies are also terrific reading. They've had great yeah. reviews, and people really enjoy them. So so come on down. Come on down yes, to exactly. Maydams of Mayhem Warehouse Crazy Sale. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, we have had an incredibly banner year for the Maydams. Yes, yes. Four short lists shortlisted authors for the Arthur Ellis Awards. And a winner. And a winner. Yes. Also. That's right. Her story in 13 Claws. That's right. It's it's a fab oh that story. It was a great story. <laughs> I interviewed Kathy story. earlier this yes, year and yes, um yes. and I also read her story. It was in 13 Claws. And I'm just gonna see if I can quickly come up with the title of it. The Outlier. The Outlier. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Uh, on behalf of the Maydams of Mayhem and Marilyn Kay, 
and myself we'd like to wish you all a really merry christmas merry christmas. thank you marilyn yeah yeah so thank you so much for joining yeah. us marilyn i really appreciate hearing about your work it's it's just really fascinating i'm going to go through a quick list of names and if i forget anyone marilyn you tell me uh catherine dumphy catherine uh, astolfo uh, yes we got the catherine's covered mm -hmm. rosemary aubert yeah. jane burfield and M.H. Calway, that's Madeline Calway, Melody Campbell, mm -hmm. myself, Donna Carrick, Lisa DeNicholas, Cheryl Friedman, my dear friend, Marilyn Kay, Rosemary McCracken, so we've got the Rosemary's covered, yeah. Lynn Murphy, Mary M. Patterson, Ed Pivowarczyk, Rosalind yes. Place, mm -hmm. Madonna Scaff. Caro Souls, another longtime friend. Right. Kevin Thornton, a new recruit. Yes. And Sylvia Maltash Warsh, an old friend of mine. And uh, yes. together we make up the Maydams of Mayhem. Find us at maydamsofmayhem.com and learn all about us. And thank you again, Marilyn. Any last minute tips for our authors? Keep listening to Donna's podcast. <laughs> thank because you. you you will learn quite a lot of things. Uh, writing tips, obviously, editing, get rid of those LYs. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of writing, yeah, uh, keep at it. Uh, believe in yourself and realize that you can do a lot of, you know, you, it's a matter of reading and writing, mm -hmm. reading and writing and being curious. Yes, yes. Oh, that's the best one. Really, Marilyn, that's the best one. Be curious, because if you're not curious, if you're writing about the rock under your shoe right now, that is not enough. It is not that's enough. Right. Be curious. Raise your head up. Look out into the world. Look for the good and the bad and how they intermingle and bring them together on the page and let them duel it out. You know? Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you again, Marilyn. I really appreciate having you on. And thank you for, for asking me to be on your podcast. I, I look at the people you have been speaking to and, and I listen to them and I think, oh my goodness, how did I get into this? I've had some terrific <laughs> people, haven't I? And you are one of them. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Let it rot. Our thanks go out to Marilyn Kay for this terrific interview. Please stay tuned for That Damn Cat, a short story by Marilyn Kay, read by yours truly. Detective Constable Maureen Kelly carefully placed the phone receiver in its cradle. She took a deep breath and exhaled slowly to stop her throat from tightening. Looks like the amber alert is off, she announced. They think they've found the body. Silence enveloped the homicide squad room. The team had been investigating fatal shootings and stabbings since May, and now they had to deal with the murder of a child. Detective Constable Joe Corso breezed by with his usual tight-butt swagger, apparently not noticing that he'd dropped the car keys into her macchiato. He looked over his shoulder. Come on, Mo, let's go. We're heading down to Williamson Park Ravine. Lou wants us there pronto. Maureen rolled her eyes and mopped up the spill. Why did their boss, Detective Sergeant Lou Harvey, always brief Joe first? Her glare shut down the titters of her colleagues. 
She pulled on her jacket, picked up her clutch, and pocketed her phone. Yeah, all right, Curly Joe, she muttered as she headed to the car. She knew getting stuck with this clown was the trial by fire for every new recruit in the homicide unit. Once this was over, she hoped to get paired with someone smart, like Detective Constable Jennifer Blake. The weather had stayed warm this September, and a misty rain had left the trees glistening, their leaves tinged with gold and red. Williamson Park Ravine was part of the Smalls Creek Ravine system in Toronto's East End. The city's parks department had recently manicured the Gerard Street East entrance and added a wooden staircase leading down into the ravine. There, underneath the steps, was a black industrial-sized garbage bag containing the naked body of 13-year-old Caitlin Jones, missing since last Friday. The investigative team was securing the scene and had begun marking out and photographing footprints and possible drag marks. Footprints on the stairs had already been lifted to enable the team easier access to the ravine. Maureen pulled back her unruly shoulder-length auburn hair and slipped on crime scene gloves and slippers before joining Lou and forensic identification officer Mark Madden at the bottom of the stairs. She knew what Lou was going to say even before he handed her the address. She and Curly Joe had the job of informing the bereaved family. She bit her lip and squared her shoulders. This was her first time informing a family of a death, and she was stuck with an insensitive jerk to see it through. Maureen and Joe didn't leave Caitlin's distraught parents until she had arranged for Mrs. Jones' sister to stay with them. Hey, Mo, you did good, Joe said on their way to the station. Mrs. Jones was a mess, but you pulled it off okay. How about I treat you to a macchiato before we head back to the squad room? Maureen wrinkled her nose. No thanks, Joe. Another time. You useless moron, she thought. But as soon as she'd parked the car, she took off to pick up a Starbucks before returning to her desk. She arrived just in time to hear Lou, standing with his sleeves rolled up and his right thumb jutting out of his pants pocket, brief the team. Initial forensic findings indicate Caitlin was electrocuted, Lou said. There were signs of low-voltage burns on other parts of her body. She also suffered at least one sexual assault. Bile burned Maureen's throat and mouth. She wished she hadn't bought that Starbucks coffee. Lou continued, Her probable time of death was sometime on the Sunday night. Recovered nail scrapings and some fine cement dust powdering parts of her body indicate possible confinement in an unfinished or partially finished basement or garage. We're extending door-to-door canvassing to the neighborhoods surrounding the entire Smalls Creek's ravine network. As an afterthought, he added, a further consideration is to look for cats. Forensic found cat dander and a few long orange cat hairs stuck in Caitlin's dark brown hair. So we'll be interviewing all the cats in the neighborhood too, Joe quipped. There was a collective groan. But as Lou allocated assignments, Maureen could see crooked smiles on a number of her colleagues' faces as they grabbed their notebooks and proceeded to their tasks. 
Lou wanted Maureen and Joe to interview the families of Caitlin's friends, as well as talk to staff and members of the Fairmount Park Community Centre, where she used to hang out. Joe, let's do a quick run-through of those initial interviews before going back to see the families, shall we, Maureen said. Sure, if you want, but maybe we should head over to the Fairmount Centre first. We didn't talk to them last time. Fair enough. Give me five and I'll be ready. The urge to get to the ladies' room suddenly overwhelmed Maureen. She felt clammy all over and her armpits dripped with sweat. Her tautly muscled five-foot-seven-inch body went wobbly. She clutched the toilet seat and vomited. This wasn't the way a police detective was supposed to act. Still trembling a bit, she rinsed out her mouth splashed water on her face, and wiped mascara drips from around her hazel eyes. She fixed her hair into a low ponytail, adjusted her clothes, and popped the last mint from her purse into her mouth before emerging from the washroom. You want me to drive, Mo? She was about to snap at him, but instead handed him the keys. Yeah, okay. Your first child murder. It's always the hardest, he said. So let's get that fucker, right? Maureen nodded. That's why I joined Homicide. They finished late but still had no leads as they parted ways and headed home. Maureen walked over to her favorite Thai takeout on Young Street while Joe went home to microwave his supper. Joe was the only guy, make that the only detective she knew, who cooked up spaghetti and meatballs or whatever else he ate and packaged the food into frozen meals ready to microwave whenever he got home. As Maureen looked at her gelatinous pad tie, she wondered if his home-cooked meals were the secret to his still trim, well-muscled figure. Many of her colleagues were overweight after years of takeout and irregular eating. She wasn't going to let that happen to her. At 27, she was as strong and fit as when she had passed the physical readiness evaluation for a police test with flying colors five years earlier. The thought of going to her condo gym briefly crossed her mind, but sheer weariness canceled that idea. She dumped the rest of her takeout in the compost bin and went to bed. Over the next two days, Maureen and Joe knocked on doors to interview people who hadn't been at home when they'd previously called and talked to more volunteer staff at the community center, all with no success. No one had seen Caitlin or anything suspicious. Connie Abbott opened the sliding glass door and gazed at the stars twinkling between the passing clouds. She stuck her hand out the door and shook a bag of cat treats. Maxie, Maxie, come to Mama, she cajoled. Her husband Sam's heavy six-foot-two-inch frame loomed behind her. He gripped her shoulder. Will you shut that door? That damn cat will be fine out there. Hell, he's big enough to fend for himself. Connie winced, then lightly placed her hand on his. Oh, Sam, don't be so impatient. Maxie's just doing what every Tom does, hunting and prowling for a lady's love. She shut the door and gave Sam's grizzled cheek a peck. There, no need to be jealous. I'll give Maxie fifteen more minutes. He'll be ready to come in by then. Sam gave her butt a sharp whack that made Connie flinch. I'm going to bed. Don't be long. 
I'll just finish my cup of tea and get the cat in. Keep the bed warm for me. She set the bag of treats at the kitchen table, settled her ample thighs onto a chair, and sat cradling the mug of chamomile tea. At fifty-five, her figure had expanded to the point where she looked like everyone's favorite aunt. She and Sam could never have children, so they had settled for cats. Maxie was their third, and Connie's favorite. Shrieks and yowls pierced the night air. She peeked through the glass of the door to see a mass of shaggy hair galloping toward the kitchen. Maxie was through the door in a flash, overturned his kibble bowl, and hid under the living room sofa. Treat bag in hand, Connie followed him. With a groan, she crouched down and proffered him a treat. Got yourself in a tangle, big boy? Maxie's fat, tufted paw knocked the treat onto the floor before he gobbled it up. She held out another treat. Maxie, his amber-green eyes wide in his furry face, stared before he began to wash his face. Okay, looks like you're fine. Connie dropped the treat on the rug, got up and went back to the kitchen to refill his bowl. Then, with a glance in Maxie's direction, she headed off for bed. On Thursday, Lou assigned Maureen and Joe to do some follow-up canvassing on Woodycroft Road. There were more bungalows there, rather than the semi-detached homes more predominant in other streets in the area. Woodycraft also had an entrance to the Smalls Creek Ravine system. As they crossed over to Woodycroft, Maureen saw what at first looked like an orange raccoon with a bushy tail trundling across the lawns. She nudged Joe. Cat! The right color! She pointed as the cat turned its squarish face toward them. Shall we see where it's going? Joe put his right hand to his brow and swiveled his head. Let's go stalk that cat, he said. Maureen grinned. They followed the cat for almost the length of the street before it hopped up some stairs and settled onto the porch of the bungalow at 106 Woodycroft. As they approached, their phones pinged simultaneously. Maureen took photos of the cat and the nearby houses and then looked at her text. Another teenage girl was missing. Twelve-year-old Anastasia Vulos was thought to be somewhere in the vicinity. She opened the brief on her phone while Joe called Lou. Anastasia's mother, Sophia, a nurse at Toronto East General Hospital, had expected her daughter to meet her at 6 p.m. in the hospital lobby. They had planned to go to the Danforth for dinner to celebrate the divorce settlement between her and Anastasia's father, Constantine. Sophia feared that her ex-husband had kidnapped Anastasia, as he had threatened to do more than once. Her daughter's phone security app indicated she was in the vicinity of Woodycroft Road before her phone shut off. Constantine, who now lived with his mother in a semi-detached house on Woodycroft Road, had called in sick to work that morning. Maureen and Joe were to proceed immediately to 2 Woodycroft Road and check out Constantine Voulos. They could hear the hacking even before they knocked on the door. A woman, presumably Vulos's mother, opened the door. Costa, the police again. They want to talk to you, she called out and went back to the kitchen. A sneezing Vulos came to the door. More cops. What do you guys want now?
Maureen tilted her head away from Vulos's spray. May we come in, Mr. Vulos? We have a few more questions to ask you. Vulos motioned them inside. I told the other guys I knew nothing about the girl or the neighbors. I'm only here till I get a place of my own. This time we'd like to ask you about your own daughter, Anastasia, Maureen said. Her mother thinks she might be here. With your your mother's permission, we'd like to search your home. Here? <coughs> what would she be doing here? Go ahead, search the place. What game is Sophia playing now? This is not a game, Mr. Vulos, Maureen replied. Your daughter has gone missing, and her phone app pinpointed her whereabouts to somewhere in this vicinity. Vulos covered his face and erupted into another bout of coughing. Oh, my God! Anastasia! No! She must be with a friend. While Maureen continued the interview, Joe searched the house and grounds. No, Anastasia. Promising to keep Vulos updated, they left him spluttering while his mother poured coffee and opened a tin of cookies. The sun was setting and it was getting chilly. As they walked back up the street, Maureen mused. Lou told you Jennifer spoke to a woman who thought she'd seen a girl with long dark hair around 5.30. The girl was waiting at the Coxwell bus stop near Fairford Avenue going north. Yeah, she talked to a lady with a cat carrier. Blonde, short, plump, I think Jennifer said. So, did they both get on the bus, Maureen asked. The woman didn't know, Joe said. She left the parkette before the bus arrived. Hmm, so, could the cat lady be implicated in Anastasia's abduction? Maybe. That's why I told Lou I'd text him with the address if a woman of that description answered the door. Here's the house where we saw the cat on the porch. Let's see what a few close neighbors have to say first, he said. They had no luck with the neighbors immediately to the left and right of the house. But at the house two doors up the street, a harried-looking elfin woman opened the door, glanced at their badges, and invited them in. A baby carriage on the porch signaled the woman could be a good source of information, since new mothers usually walked around their areas a lot with their infants and were often up at all hours of the night. Dora Otley hadn't noticed any strange goings-on in the neighborhood, but she had plenty of grievances about her next-door neighbors and the noise and dust from their home renovations. They were my best friends on the street until they started excavating. Then they added a gross gray hulk onto the house that nearly cuts off access to our side door. She also wasn't happy about the caterwauling of stray cats fighting at night. I just get to sleep. Then the screeching begins, she says, and the baby starts to wail. Maureen nodded. I can sympathize, Mrs. Oatley. She paused. Are all the cats around here strays, or do some have owners? Connie has a big Maine Coon, but he's a doll, and Connie is too. She babysits Emma when I have an appointment or need a break. In fact, I don't know what I'd do without Connie this week, with Randy away with a client in New York. What did Randy leave? Maureen asked. He took Porter's 8 a.m. flight on Monday. And he returns when? Tomorrow night, she said. 
He'll probably be home by around 8.30. Okay, could you tell me more about Connie, please, Maureen asked. Sure, actually, everyone I know loves Connie, Abbott. She's always cheerful and helpful. Her husband, Sam, upgraded our house's electrical system and gave us an amazing deal. Maureen gave a nod to Joe. Ah, and where do Connie and Sam reside? Two doors down, 106. I think Sam's still working, but Connie should be home. Joe pulled out his phone and began to text. They got up to leave. Thank you, Mrs. Otley, Maureen said. You said your husband will be home around 8.30 tomorrow? We'd like to have a chat with him, too, when he gets back from New York. Please let me know. As they walked down the porch steps, Joe said, Lou's got the address. Now let's see if Connie Abbott is home. Wait a minute, Joe. I want to take a quick look at the reno job. Remember, there was cement dust on Caitlin's body and under her nails. The two nosed around the vacant house that Mrs. Otley complained had been swarming with builders earlier in the day. Only a white van remained. Satisfied they'd seen enough, they went over to the Abbott's home. Connie came to the door at the second knock. Maureen and Joe showed their badges. Mrs. Abbott, I'm Detective Constable Joe Corso, and this is Detective Constable Maureen Kelly, Toronto Police. We're doing some door-to-door canvassing in connection with the death of Caitlin Jones. She was found Monday in the Williamson Park Ravine. May we come in? Connie scrutinized their badges for a moment, then motioned them in. Sure. Maureen looked at the plump, bottled blonde dressed in stretch pants and a red tunic sweater and saw nothing remarkable. Come in and make yourselves comfortable, Connie said. Maureen sat down on a big wing-back chair. Oh, no, that's the cat chair, Connie chided. Sit down over there on the sofa. I think it's clear of hair. Maureen stood up brushed her backside and sat down beside Joe on the sofa. Would you care for a cup of tea, Connie offered? I drink mostly herbal, but I think I can rustle up some ordinary black tea bags. Or would you care for some instant coffee? No thanks, Mrs. Abbott, they both intoned. Connie sat down on a big easy chair. Oh, please, call me Connie. Everyone does. Joe pulled out his notebook, his signal to Maureen to handle the questioning. Mrs. Otley was just telling us about your cat, Maureen began. Oh, Maxie? I'm afraid he's populated the ravine with little Maxies and Maxines. Dora's not so happy about that, but boys will be boys, and Maxie is a very big boy. Maureen glanced around. Is he around now? I love cats, too. No, I'm not sure where he is right now, but he'll be scratching at the back door when he gets hungry. Right. Well, we'd like to ask you and your husband a few questions. By the way, where is Sam now? Connie nestled her thighs a bit more in the chair, half shut her eyes and rubbed her upper lip against her lower one. Oh, he won't be back till around 8.30 or 9 tonight. Why so late? Well, he's got a big job out in Oshawa, and it can be a bitch of a drive, pardon my French, back into the city. What does your husband do? Maureen asked. Sam's an electrical contractor. He upgraded Dora and Randy's house. I asked him to give them a good deal, and he did. Then Maureen asked Connie where she had been around five o'clock. 
I found a little Maxine limping around and decided to take her to ORA on Coxwell. You know, the Organization for the Rescue of Animals. They're good with rescuing cats. That was very kind of you, Connie. What time do you remember getting there? Well, it's just a short streetcar ride to Coxwell, then a quick walk down to their building. I'm not sure. I was home before six. When you walked down Coxwell to ORA or back to the Girard streetcar, did you talk to anyone? Connie giggled. Sam says I gibber to everyone. Do you remember talking to a teenage girl with long, dark hair? Connie appeared to consider the question. I may have, but if I did, I don't remember. I was more concerned about the cat. Maureen took her phone from her clutch, scrolled for a moment, and handed the phone to Connie. Could I ask you to look at this photo and see if you remember? Connie squinted at the photo for a long time before returning the phone to Maureen. Then she shook her head slowly. Nope, there wasn't anyone like her on the streetcar. I'm talking about before you got on the streetcar, Connie. We've got a report from another person who thought she saw someone very much like you talking to this girl. Does that help jog your memory? Connie put her hand to her neck, then quickly withdrew it. What are you talking about? I thought you were here to talk about that poor girl, Caitlin Jones. Now you're showing me a photo of someone I've never seen before, telling me I saw her before getting onto the streetcar. I thought I said someone very much like you, Connie, Maureen said. It's important that you think hard about this girl because she's gone missing. We'd like to find her before something bad happens to her. Well, I can't tell you what I don't know, Connie said. Perhaps you'd like to think more about it. We can come back when your husband gets home. Thanks for your time, Mrs. Abbott, Joe said as he and Maureen got up to leave. We can see ourselves out. As they walked toward the street, Joe asked, Well, what do you think? Call it a hunch, Maureen said, but I think Anastasia's in there. Yup. I'd say Connie's hiding something, Joe confirmed. He pulled out his phone. Let's Google the ORA. He searched for a moment, then said, They're open till nine tonight. We can swing by and see if they corroborate Connie's story. By the way, Lou is sending some surveillance to help us out. Okay, Joe, let's go, Maureen said. She swung the car into the ORA building's parking lot. You want to do the talking this time, she asked. Nah, you're on a roll, Maureen. Go for it. A volunteer, Pete, remembered having seen Connie. Yeah, she handed in an injured cat about five this evening. I've logged it. It's right here. You want to see the cat? No, thanks, Maureen said. Do you mind if I take a photo of your log page? Go ahead. As Maureen thanked Pete and took a picture... Joe handed him a card. Write your name and telephone number where you can be reached on the back, please. We'd like to get back to you real soon. It's nearly eight, Joe, Maureen said as they pulled across the street from the Abbott home. I bet her husband is already home. In fact, I think he was at home all the time we were there. Joe threw up his hands. Okay, Mo, how the hell do you know he's in there? I thought his van was the one parked at the Renault up the street, she said, as they stepped out of their car. What? 
I didn't see any logo or lettering on it, Joe said, as they headed toward the house. But it would make sense he would get the job, Maureen countered. Dora Otley would have recommended Abbott to her now ex-best friends. Besides, I checked on the license plate number. This van is Abbott's. Joe raised his eyebrows and held out his palms in mock surrender. Okay, but why didn't you bring this up while we were in there? Because Connie would have kicked us out if we'd asked to search the place. I didn't know what else to do except end the interview. Well, Lou's got the place watched, Joe nodded toward a cruiser parked two doors down. Let's try again. Connie didn't open the door so quickly this time, nor did she invite them in. Sam's not back yet, she said, as she started to close the door. Joe put out his hand to block her. We've got some news we think you'd like to hear. With a sigh, Connie let them in. What have you got to tell me? Joe moved a few more steps inside. Only that you turned in the cat to ORA at precisely 5.07 today. We'd like to ask you a few more questions about what happened after you took the cat into ORA. We'd also like to talk to your husband. May we come in and sit down? Connie hesitated. I suppose. She stepped aside. Like I said, Sam's not here. Maureen surveyed the hall leading to the kitchen before moving into the living room. Still no sign of the cat? Connie gave a petulant nope. Joe began again. Mrs. Abbott, Connie, take your time to pull your thoughts together. Then please take us through, step by step, what happened after you took the stray into ORA. Connie stared but said nothing. Mrs. Abbott, would you mind if I have a quick look around while you collect your thoughts? Go ahead, look around. Thank you. Joe got up and motioned for Maureen to stay with Connie. The women sat in silence. They could hear Joe searching the main floor and the upstairs rooms. When he returned, he looked at Maureen. She read the disappointment in his face. Nothing. He turned to Connie. Most bungalows have a basement. I don't seem to see any stairs to yours. Who says we have a basement, Connie said. Maureen got up. But you do have a garage. May I take a look there? The key is on the hook by the door, Connie said. But we only use it for storage. When Maureen drew up the garage door and flicked on a light switch, she looked around and sighed. All she saw was a boat and building and gardening material. No cat. No Anastasia. As soon as Maureen left, Connie began speaking in a robotic voice. He broke the kitten's leg, you know. That's why I had to take her to ORA. Startled, Joe asked, Your husband? Sam? Who else? Connie said. And then what happened, Connie? Joe prompted. <sighs> I went to ORA. On the way back, I popped into the dollar store across the street to buy a couple of things. At the bus stop, I saw a pretty dark-haired girl waiting for the bus. She wanted to see the cat, but the carrier was empty. So, what happened? We chatted a bit. And? The girl's bus was late. Sam was on his way back up from an electrical supply place near Eastern Avenue, and he saw us. He said the Queen streetcar was stuck in the intersection at Coxwell and offered to drive her to the hospital. 
She got into the van with you, Joe asked. Connie bowed her head, folded her hands in her lap, and said nothing. After a moment, she looked up again, tears welling in her eyes. Then she resumed. It all started with Dora Otley, pretty, petite, and long dark hair, the way I used to be. Tell me about Dora, Joe urged. There's nothing much to say. Sam was fixated on her. He incorporated her name into our sex play. Granted, he always liked a bit of kink in our sex, you know. A few little shocks, some slapping and bondage with his cables. Then it was kitty porn. She swallowed hard before continuing. I didn't expect him to bring home pretty little Caitlin. Her death was a mistake. Too much electricity, she paused. You know, I thought we'd just go to the hospital, but Sam had other ideas. Then Joe felt his phone vibrate in his pocket. As he dug out the phone, he remembered the surveillance team outside. Time to call in the cavalry. Maureen returned to the house through the kitchen's sliding glass door. Once inside, she thought she heard scratching and trilling noises. Maxie! But where? She examined the kitchen walls and opened cupboards. As she approached the pantry alcove, the scratching became louder and more frantic. The noise seemed to come from behind a section of empty shelves. She leaned on a ledge to examine it more carefully. To her surprise, a whole unit swung out, and a big, furry form scuttled across the floor, heading straight for the kibble bowl. The missing stairs! She peered down and saw a dim light. She texted Joe and began edging down the steps. She paused halfway and squinted into the dimness. Then she saw a girl with long, dark hair, tied up and gagged in a corner. Anastasia! She started to hurry down, but suddenly someone grabbed her from the side and hurled her to the floor. Abbott! Sam Abbott came at her, flexing a wire cord in his hands. Maureen leapt up, faced him, and kicked him in the groin. He staggered back and dropped the cord. Abbott straightened up and charged at her, growling. Maureen aimed her right elbow at his solar plexus, but Abbott knocked her arm down, spun her around, and wrapped her in a bear hug. Then Joe barreled down the stairs. He trapped Abbott's neck and head in a rear chokehold. Abbott began flailing and released Maureen. Once Abbott stopped struggling, Joe brought him down slowly and flipped him over. At that point, one of the surveillance officers Joe had summoned raced down the stairs and handcuffed Abbott. Maureen and Joe knelt and released Anastasia. Though gagged, bound, and terrified, she appeared otherwise unhurt. When they went upstairs, they found Connie, under the guard of a second surveillance officer, sitting stoically, one hand clutching the sofa's edge, the other stroking Maxie. Maxie purred and stared straight ahead. As Connie was escorted from the house, she looked at Maureen. Who will take care of Maxie? she asked. Exasperated, Maureen rolled her eyes, then focused on Connie. Mrs. Abbott, rest assured Maxie will be fine. About an hour later, as they watched the ambulance take Anastasia and her weeping parents away, Maureen turned to Joe. It appears you helped save my life. Thanks. A half-smile flickered on Joe's lip. We all have our moments, he said. 
Maureen gave him a poke in the ribs. But what took you so long? Joe cocked his head and raised an eyebrow. With a glint in his eyes and a shrug of his shoulders, he said, I figured you were on a roll. Our thanks go out to Marilyn Kay for this wonderful story titled That Damn Cat. Are you a published author? Would you like to be featured on our weekly Dead to Rights podcast? We're now scheduling slots for 2019. Please contact me at carrotpublishing at rogers.com and say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. We'll love hearing from you. Likewise, if you have any questions about books or the book business or the writing craft for any of our authors or for me, Donna Carrick, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Same email address, carrickpublishing at rogers.com. You can find us anytime on Facebook under Dead to Rights or under Carrick Publishing, our publishing page. You can also find our personal pages, Donna Carrick and Alex Carrick. On Twitter, we're listed at Dead to Rights Pod, at Carrick Publishing, sorry, that's at Carrick Pub, at Donna underscore Carrick, or at Alex underscore Carrick. All music featured on Dead to Rights, including our theme song, Eyes of Gold, is original material composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Look for his work on YouTube at Ted Carrick Music. All the best of the holidays to you, one and all, with love and warm wishes from all of us here at Carrick Publishing and Dead to Rights, the podcast. Join us next week for our 52nd and final episode of 2018, Dead to Rights, the podcast. Free, yet it rides. Let it rock.